And we're back. Just talk about the stories for this week. Um, Jack, did you uh, and Allison have stories in there? Yes, I, I have stories uh, Allison actually did something. <laughs> she <laughs> did something. I did something for once. Oh, you talk about uh, the cuckoo's egg. Yeah, it's one of my so, favorite security books of all time. Yeah, so this is like a really old paper that I came across, and uh, I, I'm always looking around for interesting lectures or write-ups to read, uh, to like spend an hour on. Um, and this is the one that I came across last week, and this is like from the '80s. It's really old. Definitely not new news. <laughs> the 80s is really old. Did you catch that one, Jack? Killing me. <laughs> oh, yeah. yes. Jack was expecting his second child in the in the 80s, I think. <laughs> <laughs> right? Pretty well, that's probably not too far from the truth. Sorry, Jack. It hurts more when it's the truth, I know. It hurts less when it's greatly exaggerated. Yes, the, the baby of the family came. That one wasn't. The baby of the family arrived in 1985. So, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'll exaggerate more next time. <laughs> Can we go uh, back to partying like it's 1936 or something? <laughs> so what... What Jack's saying is he's old enough to be your dad. That's what he's saying. I think he is. He's almost old enough to be my dad. Not not quite, though. He would have had to start really young, like teenage years. It can to be, be done. my dad. Can... <laughs> Stop in here. Stop in here. I'm, I'm set. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Who's Let's your daddy? Just say I met the woman who has been my wife for 33 years. I met her in high school. We met in 1975. Oh, I was uh, born not shortly after that. <laughs> <laughs> I was three years old, Jack. <sighs> uh, give me over a decade. <laughs> You know what? That makes the rest of us feel old, Allison. <laughs> um, so what are you saying about the 80s? We got stuck there. Yeah, so I'm talking about this paper that is totally new to me because I never Stalking the Wiley hacker. Yeah, so this is a really old story about one of the first hacking cases that was detected. Clifford Stahl. Yeah. Was his name. So uh, he's running a laboratory at, uh, let's see, Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory, and they get compromised, and they find out because they're doing some bookkeeping, and they find out like 75 cents worth of computer time was not paid for. So they were like, oh, you know, what's going on here? And they realized that the computer time was you, being... I'm sorry, can you imagine a time where you have to pay for computer time yeah, and only like, pay for what you use? Now, yeah. the, the frightening part is that with cloud computing, we've gone back to that, right? Like Amazon EP, EC2. Yeah, but it's so much cheaper. It's so much cheaper now. It's true. Yeah. yeah. And 75 cents, no big deal. Right. Unlike the price of gas, it's actually gone down. Yeah. I'll, <laughs> I'll trade gas for computer time any day. Anyways, so they, they found this uh, mismatch in their books and they said, you know, hey, somebody's not paying for this. And they realized that it was because somebody had root access to one of their servers and uh, when they realized this was going on, instead of shutting everything down like one might expect, they decided to start trying to track down who was behind this and what was going on. 
because they thought at first it was a student that was doing this. Mm -hmm. And the guy was basically just tracking this down. And he did this for like well over a year. And he found out. Did they talk about where he was jingling his keys over the line to introduce noise to slow him down? Uh, that was not in this paper. That's in the book. That's in oh, the book. Yeah. I didn't see the book yet. Like, you I haven't saw, read the book? I read this paper like two days ago. Oh, you, but you haven't read The Cuckoo's Egg? No, oh, like dude. I didn't even know about it. Dude, you totally... I'm trying to think if I have a copy that I can give you. Yeah, if you have a copy, I'll read it. My favorite part is that he coded the monitoring of the guy using the systems in Cabal. What's going on? Cabal? Yeah. Yeah, so... It's an epic book, dude. It's all... Like, yeah. I, I read it just before, as I was getting into security, and, like, I stayed up all night reading it, and I never knew yeah, that. I remember reading it about 1995 when it started computer science. Well, this paper... Uh, kind of describes See, Carlos the... is kind of old too <laughs> well this paper describes the events uh, but it's not like written in a fictional style uh, it's just basically a technical paper but it was so well written I spent like a good two or three hours just reading over it um, and uh, it's really interesting it turns out the guy was related to the KGB spoiler yeah, alert yeah. Um, yeah so Clifford Stalin that didn't go on to really do much of anything in the way of security after that which yeah, is kind of disappointing because it was a really good story yeah um, it was really well written and uh but he had this thing where they took the um apple macintosh computers you know the ones that look like a box and converted those into fish tanks really that was like his claim to fame after that that's yeah. cute that's but that's cool. not as cool as tracking the, down the kgb the, the macquariums right yeah it's a really cool maker project i actually had a bunch of them and i was going to do it i never get around to it and i got rid of them be Mostly because cool fish die kind of easily. Yeah, <laughs> fish die a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. The ABC website was hacked into, and it likely was breached in 2011. So this site was really hacked for looks like two years. Um, we need to specify which A in ABC. Uh, a Australia. It was the ABC.net.eu. Right. Yes, correct. Jack. Australian Broadcasting Company. Oh, so it's a totally different, it's not, it, I thought read it as it was the like ABC affiliate in Australia. You're saying it's Australian, Australian Broadcasting, Broadcasting Company, Company. ABC.net.au. Right. Being, to me being from America, all the other countries, it's, it's, whatever they yeah. do, I'm like, whatever. always stands for America, right? That's, That's right. right. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a true I have to travel, in, have to travel you, internationally right. next month. Do you have a Confederate not. flag <laughs> flying from your vehicle? <laughs> uh, I, I love seeing those here in New England for people unclear on the concept. It's, 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 people people it's, around uh, here get really scared if they see the Confederate flag. It's funny. I don't have a Confederate flag, but my dad does. That's awesome. Yeah. Like he flies the Confederate flag no, out. No, he he has one in his house. Oh, oh okay. Like he he's like totally, in his house or like, like in, inside yeah. the house. But it's definitely a Confederate flag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in Texas, you have to fly them outside. It's required, and all the That's homeowners right. association. <laughs> That's awesome. So anyway, their website was hacked, um, and it, I mean, it just goes to show. Um, that just because someone has all the hashes on your website doesn't mean you're going to immediately find out about that. So in this case, they uh, got all the hashes and then they did stuff with them and 
two years ago, they went at a forum and they were like, hey, can you crack these hashes for me? And it was like the administrator uh, hashes. And the other dude's like, yeah, I, can, I, I cracked those for you. And they exchanged the money because it was like a site about, you can see the screenshot. And if you go to the screenshot, in uh, Patrick Gray's post from Risky Business, uh, covered the story very well. Oh, it's Inside well. Pro. Um, yes. So you're familiar with, you've used this forum before people, to yeah, people, collect credit card. I mean, <laughs> no, what? People dump. That's how you paid for the Confederate flag. <laughs> people dump huge piles of hashes on Inside Pro, and they say, just crack these hashes for me, please. There's no money exchanged, uh, as okay. far as I know. Um, this one looks like it was done for money. Oh, really? Hmm. Oh, interesting. Okay, well, I am proven wrong by the image I barely looked at. Um, but, I mean, for the most part, the Inside Pro forums are basically like people post hashes and then responders try to crack them. And Inside Pro is a program that cracks hashes. Oh, uh, okay. Um, so the interesting thing was, in 2011, he posted these hashes and he said crack them. Then someone two years later like leaked that the hashes were um, stolen and there was a match between the two hashes. And they were pretty, I think they said they were unique to each other. Do you um, remember the LinkedIn breach? Yes. Do you remember how they found that out? No. Somebody posted a huge list of hashes on Inside Pro. It was deleted very shortly afterwards. But in those hashes, there were a lot of uh, passwords that said like LinkedIn one or LinkedIn password or whatever. And, and a lot of, People create passwords based on the name of the website that it's about, right? So people. That's what all my passwords are. Exactly. So, <laughs> so my Gmail password is Gmail it's one, Gmail and, one yeah. and my LinkedIn password is LinkedIn one, of course. Uh, and then people saw this and then matched it against their own LinkedIn password and then realized that it matched, and that's how they found out that it, there was a breach. My interesting password of uh, hot triple X milfs is really actually never mind. <laughs> 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 hey what's what's funny when that linkedin thing happened i started a meme like the next day or something it was messing with people and creating passwords based on how fun, how i knew them so stuff like brian krebs was i don't need no wash po or something like that and some people jumped all over me thought i was actually publishing real uh passwords from linkedin people <laughs> started jumping all over and getting all pissed off and asking me where the source was and all that crap and it was i had to block like three people because they got so mad at me that was crazy <laughs> just a side thing there so Internet trolling at its finest you, exactly freaking trolling so do you think secure development is it a must do or is it a money pit it depends it's an interesting question isn't it um i have really kind of mixed feelings about the thoughts and opinions that are posted here in this article. This stems from a panel that was given an RSA this year. Um, first they say you, they should, you should check your code only once then only check it if it changes again, hence saving time. I think that, you know, that, that makes sense. However, I get kind of concerned with that as new exploitation techniques come out all the time. I think you have to go back and recheck your code because there may be some new vulnerabilities <clears throat> that you didn't know about before some new techniques that you have to go back and look for. Um, I do agree that if you identify a tricky or crucial area in your code, that you should spend a lot of time on that is kind of what they said in the article. Uh, I, I think that's true. I, I think time and resources are important there. So maybe put more than one developer or three or four developers on that problem 
give them a good chunk of time more than you normally would uh, and make sure that they hash that out, I think greatly increases your chance for success. You know, like the code that maybe hashes all your passwords for LinkedIn. Yeah, well, I mean, from what I understand, if you put garbage in, then you get garbage out. And if your initial code base is full of security holes, then you could... Adobe, Adobe. Um, you well, could, one of the uh, panelists was, in fact, Brad Arkin from Adobe. So you got to kind of take this all with a grain of salt. I mean, well, yeah, but I'm Brad... not sure if it's a feather in his cap. So I think it's a feather in his cap, right? Because Adobe started with a really crappy base, and now they're releasing more vulnerability advisories and fixes than ever before. And I think they're really just going back and fixing old crappy code, which is not the way they preferred to do it. But don't, re- don't forget, Adobe bought Macromedia. so. That's where all this code stems from. Yeah, so if you uh, want to spend like well, the next decade plugging up a colander yeah. of code. Um, but I mean, if I, they... How does Adobe make money on Flash Player? Because they sell you the tools to generate Flash. Okay, so it's the software for developers that's a revenue model. Right, right. right? Well, I mean, it's like, you know, yeah. they, they don't make money on the on funny cats, but they make money on Photoshop, you know. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Did you say funny cats instead yes. of lol cats? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that's nice. <laughs> well, that's that's from a, animated that, gifs anyway. That's, well, that's, that's from a conversation last week. So yeah. continuing the funny, funny cats, cats conversation from elsewhere. Oh, boy. Um, so get this. They also recommend, in addition to funny cats, that only sending the developers who are interested in security to training because if you send developers that aren't interested in security to training, you won't get your return on investment. I say fire the developers that aren't interested in say, security. This is this right? is like the, this is like the uh, this, right. This is like the uh, you know never try to teach a, a pig to sing because it only wastes your time and annoys the pig. Uh, make them into bacon, right? You know, just, there you go. Make your developers into bacon is what we're saying. There we're saying. Yeah. You heard it here first on Paul.com. <laughs> Bacon's uh, awesome. You know what? I'm sure that developer bacon is probably partially horse meat, but that's another story. Horse bacon. Wow. Uh, can we get into beef bacon? No, there's. It's interesting. Never mind. We're, Better than turkey bacon. Um, so this is a good idea. A so here's tan- what you do. Let, let's right before there's a big round of layoffs, you send all your developers to security training, and the ones that bitch and moan about it, the the most, those are the ones that you lay off, and then you go find developers that actually want to code securely. Why would somebody want to code but not code securely? That's well, another part, thing that I don't understand. Well, part of if it you're is, a good programmer, you don't want to write in Part of it is code. the security The security people. They're all assholes, right? I mean, that, that's a huge mindset. You run into that continuously. Security yeah. people are assholes, according to everybody but us, well, no. and according to us, everybody else And developers aren't. Oh, you know, but but uh, but no, we're assholes because we talk, make their job harder, and they're under the gun you, it, to put out code. It's using like, it's no, using the terminology that that's appropriate. I mean, if you're talking to uh, financial management, um, terms like risk and debt have meaning to them, and they understand them. And if you and if you talk have that conversation, uh, if you're talking to developers, if you talk about um, if they're if they're not just simply trying to get code shipped, and you talk about uh, Stability and reliability Wait, what and performance. Is not just trying to get code shipped. Well, you know, some of them are trying to. But if you talk about stability and reliability and performance, which are 
components of secure code. Um, I mean, that's kind of just the QA thing, though. Well, QA plays a role, Allison. It's a good. It's a good point. Yeah, I mean, certainly. I think kind of security is part of the QA process, or at least it should be. Well, and that's it, it, like I said, it's a good point because they also mentioned in the article that you know sometimes the black box testing is money better spent in securing your code rather than paying a, a developers a bunch of money and time to go through the code and look for vulnerabilities. Just black box test it in QA, and a lot of times you can find them more quickly. And I think that from reading articles like this over the past however many years and analyzing this problem for as long as I can remember, it, it's going to depend on your situation, right? It's that you're going to have to play, strike a balance between how much time you spend in your development process and how much time you spend in your QA process and how much time you spend in your testing after it gets out of QA process to see if there are vulnerabilities. You, everyone's formula is going to be different. You know what I mean? I think if sometimes you just say, well, put all of it in QA, it's not going to work out. Depends on who your developers are, what your culture's like, and what kind of software you're creating as to where you should put your time to find vulnerabilities. It, 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 it will even go, uh, we can even go even further in terms of what application are you coding? Is it a web app? Yeah. Is it a Absolutely. client app? And in addition to that, it could even vary language by language. What languages are you using? What libraries are you using for your coding? Uh, because uh, I know that at least uh, I work with several coders who actually build their own tools to make sure that they comply with several standards. Uh, there's no black box tool that is going to inspect their code, but they're uh, aware enough that they need to have certain practices in place. So they build their own parsing scripts that are used bef uh, as part of their kit commits that will check all of their code to make sure that everything's kosher before it even goes into the Git repo. Uh, I just want to announce to everyone that you we've used over 80% of our monthly viewer hours for our Ustream broadcasting. So stop being so popular, it's going to cost us money. <laughs> good problem to have. That's, that's good news. That's good news. I'm glad everyone is enjoying uh, watching us live. Our viewers are collectively DDoSing us. Pretty much. Do you want to talk about what the hot security skills are of 2013? Okay. What are the hot security skills of 2013? Diverse technology experience, fluency on the IT side of physical security, advanced data protection expertise, business and financial acumen, good communication skills, and good communication. I put good communication skills in there. I thought that was on purpose. Yeah. Speak, well, I, speak I, I think more, speaking more better. Yeah. <laughs> I I think you need great communication skills rather than just good. Um. I definitely agree with the diverse technology experience. This I, seems like really general. It is I very, think these would be the hot security skills of 2012 too. This was from PC Advisor, so it's not like it was yeah. some PC or security focused thing. I think they were pretty being being pretty high level because of that. But I think that uh, the two that I would kind of pick out of there as maybe not hot, but definitely requirements, right, are diverse technology experience and outstanding communication skills. Um, 
I think you need to have experience with different technologies and not just breaking them, but implementing them so that they work and then implementing them securely so much so that they break and then having kind of backed out some of that security so that they work again and then going to the other side of the fence and then, and then breaking the stuff. Yeah, it seems Th- That like is such the... a critical skill in security. Yeah, and it seems like you have to be able to do that and then translate that into language that some business person can understand. Exactly. Exactly. Like I think some those are vice the two, president. The two hot skills. And I think in, if you look at I've been in the process close. of hiring somebody mm-hmm. at work. Uh, I have two open positions and we have been doing we have interviewed like eight to nine people. And I do have to say out of those eight to nine people, only three in average actually knew multiple technologies. Mm-hmm. They actually knew Linux, Windows. They knew how to do. They knew networking, how to read a packet capture. In addition to knowing what Active Directory is and knowing how to configure Linux as a as a server, they knew how to use Git or operate in a shell on itself, which quite surprised me. Many people just come out of college. College we covered Java, and almost everything was done in Java. Right. And that's what I know. And or others, the only thing we, uh, uh, the only language I've coded all of my life has been Java and C sharp. And Justin, but do you have you done C? Have you done assembly? Have you coded in Linux? Have you coded in Windows? And many times they told, no, I always use a Windows laptop throughout my entire college career. And and uh, I remember I know a professor of uh, one of the local colleges. They actually had to cancel. For this year, their Unix Linux class because no student wanted to take it. Mm, that's which scary. I found quite sad. That's very sad. You need that skill. Is security. that a function of the the time we're in now? I mean, uh, it seems like when I was coming up, I started in IT in '94, and it seems like we were trying to be very diverse back then. And uh, is that? I don't know. I mean, I don't have a complete picture. I just wonder if that's just the way kids are now. Well, I, I don't know. I, I think, you know, Mike, to your point, if you want to specialize in something now, there's so many different technologies that have grown, that that's, uh, that might be okay. It depends on what role you're trying to go for, right? I mean, you, you're not going to get in too many positions in security being highly specialized, you know? But if you want to be a Windows systems administrator or Windows programmer and you only know Windows, all the more power to you. I mean, if that's what you like, right? Uh, yeah. It's when you get into security, I think you need that diversification. I agree. Now, in, in fact, I remember when I worked, and not to date myself, back in 98, when I worked at Compaq, through a part of, great part of my career at Compaq and then Microsoft and then Hewlett Packard. I remember in all of those, uh, let's say Compaq and Hewlett Packard, you had your open VMS guys, you had your Windows guys, mm. and you got your hardware guys. Each everybody lived on their own island, and then when you went on until the advanced systems group, you had the Linux guys on one side, the HPX guys on the other, and when I and when I was at Microsoft Consultant Services, we had the developer guys, and then we had the infrastructure guys, and then when we went into infrastructure, you got the management guys that were the ones that dealt with SMS, and then you got the other guys that dealt would exchange 5.5 and proxy 2.0 and stuff like that. Uh, so, Allison, tell us about malware as a service. Oh, yeah. So, is this uh, just like renting a botnet? Is that? 
Well, there's a lot of... Or is it more to it than that? There's a lot of services you can buy on the dark gray market. I heard that. Yeah. So, I mean, this article is pretty general, um, but it it's just a topic that I'm really interested in because it's actually the subject of the talk that I'm going to be giving at B-Sides Rhode Island. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, the title of the talk is called The Noob Persistent Threat. Uh, it's basically about all of these services that are offered on the dark gray market. Uh, things like DDoS for hire, like if you're playing a video game against somebody, and you can't win against them in the video game, you can just DDoS their home IP address, knock them offline. Um, there are services like that that are pretty common. Um, there's also things like uh, proxies that are actually infected hosts, and then you can just proxy through the infected hosts. Um, it's, it's really interesting. Um, places like hack forums are uh, really interesting marketplaces for seeing stuff like this. Uh, because not only can you see the services that they're offering, um, but if you really dig into it, you realize that these guys don't see a lot of heat from law enforcement. Because, uh, first of all, they're using PayPal and they never get banned. And uh, a lot of these people use email addresses that are shared with social media. So you can actually track down who these people are. Uh, it's very interesting. Hmm. That, that'll all be talked about in the talk. But I find it very interesting. I've spent like the last half year, uh, my spare time has been spent on this stuff. Nice. Very, very interesting. Cool. Actually, you know what? I found uh, the other day, one of these guys that owns these uh, DDoS for Hire websites, I found his Facebook account. And uh, I found a picture that he posted publicly. He tattooed his handle on his back. <laughs> all across That's his brilliant. back. All across his back, the handle that he uses on uh, hacking, uh, various hacking forums, it's, it's just right there, and it's public. <laughs> I was, uh, that's and, brilliant. And I really, Do you have any identifying marks? Yeah, a big dumbass on my back. <laughs> yes. and I, I, I was really, going to get Paul.com tattooed on my back. <laughs> Is that a, ba you're saying that's well, a bad idea? It's okay, because you're not using Paul.com to sell DDoS services. Uh... Sorta. If the client asks for that, <laughs> I guess that's different. We have permission. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I found this just last week, and I really want to put it in the talk. But then again, I have this policy of not revealing anybody's name, and the guy just His puts name. everything out there. You could there. blur it out. Well, it wouldn't be make as much of an impact if it was blurred out, though. I would have to heavily censor it because he put so much stuff publicly that if you just Google search a couple of words, it'll be there. Wow. So, uh, I don't know. It's just very funny, and I want to share as much of it as I can. You could just black out, like, between the, from the... Leave the first letter and the last letter and just black out everything in between. Yeah, just a, a, a screenshot. I'm the master at, at redacting... Stuff for presentations, dude. Yeah. Full of black squares <laughs> yeah. everywhere. I've had to do a, a lot of redacting <laughs> over yeah, the years. That actually might make it effective if people see how many black squares you're having to put on that. That's right. Show how dumb he is. Very true. And, and I mean, that picture was followed up with an advertisement for his DDoS service. I mean, that just removes all doubt there. I don't know. I, I find it so interesting because. How much trouble can you get in for DDoSing, though? Well, I mean, Pretty much nothing, because the thing is, when I'm looking at communities of credit card thieves, yeah, uh, they have much better OPSEC than communities of 
people that sell DDoS services and mm-hmm. proxies and like this much lower level stuff. Um, for various reasons, it's much harder to track down Carters. Mm-hmm. Um, but for DDoSers and like low level stuff, it's so easy to track them down. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking that's just because they haven't been picked off by law enforcement. Yep, they've got to they've got to hit the wrong people, like the. I just think like that the they're... like the Anons who really didn't know what the significance of firing up uh, Loike was. Yeah, and, well, uh, and got caught up in the the sweep, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, these guys that I'm looking at right now, they're not political, so there's there's not that element. Um, and then they're also not technically stealing money; they're just stealing computer time. Right. Which and, is still CFAA I mean, it, it violation. Is, yeah, you know? it's I, I still mean, illegal. Still, because it's uh, the cost of dealing with it, but yeah, it's yeah. still illegal. But yeah, you've got you've got to for DDoS, you've got to offend the right people to, for it to be a problem. Yeah, or the wrong people. And like, if you're offending somebody who streams video games, like, uh, okay, well, it, nobody's going to put resources into investigating that, and they basically exist because it's, they're such a low priority. We talked about Bruce and I earlier on the show, uh, Mike. I think you. Uh, mentioned as someone that uh, you look up to for advice on how to think differently about security. Uh, he posted an article to his blog on, uh, and it was a link to a document that describes how Al-Qaeda document on avoiding drone strikes, which here in the U.S. we may also have to worry about. Yeah. That's a different story. I'll have to um, program my drones to ignore these signals. Well, these are uh, this is offensive countermeasures, right? So here's what they're doing. They're jamming uh, and confusing electronic communications using old equipment, keeping them uh, running for 24 hours because strong frequencies uh, makes it possible to use them as a method of deception, um, such as the used by the Yugoslav army when they used the microwave ovens in attracting and confusing NATO missiles fitted with electromagnetic uh, search devices. I thought that was really cool um, that your microwave not only can you heat up your burrito but you can use it to disrupt the drones that are coming to attack you so did you know how they use the microwave ovens uh no have you have purview into how well i read a story about it um basically they just uh wheel out a microwave oven like on top of a, a broken car or something uh and then they open the door and then they jam the safety lock and then mm-hmm. they just run it door open, microwaves blasting out to the world, and it's on the same frequency as radio waves. Yeah. So then they detect all these radio waves coming from this one source, and they say, oh, this must be a transmitter. Let's bomb it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So they don't need to focus the signal any. No, you just open the door. You just open the door. It's just blah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so the other methods they use are spreading the reflective pieces of glass on a car or in the roof of a building. I guess if you had a building that someone was there that you really didn't like, that would be the one that you put the reflective pieces of glass on. Now, why would that attract the drone strike? I'm that doesn't sure. make sense. I don't know. I know back in the Gulf War, we put uh, reflective pieces of tape on our vehicles, and that identified us to our own um, our own airplanes. So maybe they still use that same procedure to some degree, and it keeps them from striking. It also says placing a group of skilled snipers to hunt the drone, uh, especially the reconnaissance ones, because they fly low. That's Six the big. That's the big joke right low. now. Is that drone season's open, and they show in pictures of 
people in camouflage in the U.S. What are you shooting six kilometers straight up? That doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, something really powerful. That's more than a 50 cal. Yeah. Um, Let's see. Jamming and confusing of the electronic communication using the ordinary water-lifting dynamo fitted with a 30-meter copper pole. I'm not sure what that is. Sounds similar to the microwave attack. Let's see. A dynamo lifted with a 30-meter copper pole. I have no idea how that would work. I I don't know either. Mike, do you have If I was here, they'd be stealing all the copper. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Uh, Allison, Jack, did you guys have any other uh, stories? So I just had a gotcha. one story and one quick one that maybe in, in a couple of weeks we'll talk about. Uh, one cyber fast track has run out of road. Um, what the the program that Mudge uh, started? At they gave DARPA. away all their money. Uh, well, I mean, it was an experiment, and it was sequestration. It was supposed to end, and it's going to end. But uh, hopefully. Um, Maybe they should sequester that $50 million they used to buy TSA new uniforms. Yeah. Hopefully they, uh, them. well, I mean, we know, we know a lot of folks that got funding out of, uh, cyber fast track, which was a good thing. Uh, and hopefully that program will, uh, make people think uh, in government, uh, different ways to, to do things. Mm. But that program, I mean, it was, it was an experiment. Uh, the experiment is a success, but it's, uh, it's coming to an end. Mm. Uh, and the other one I have not, uh, done anything more than take a quick glance at it but for the data nerds out there the trust wave global security report is out so okay yep. the uh now also tsa now will let you bring small sharp instruments did two, you read that what is it, two, two and a quarter point, inches two yeah, and a two, half inches or something yeah something like that two and a half inch blades still yeah. can't bring a bottle of water or can't can bring liquids on board. but you can you bring, bring two and a half inch. small yeah. pocket knife that doesn't lock yeah the, can't be locking yeah can't yeah uh, flight attendants uh, and uh, stewardesses, uh, whatever, what do they call them? Flight attendants now? Yeah, is, that, is that the appropriate term? Uh, are not happy about that because while that may protect the pilots, they say it doesn't protect them from getting stabbed with a two and a quarter inch pocket knife. Do they regularly get threatened with knives from passengers? Is it that bad? Do they get stabbed all the time? I, On planes? You've got to remember five eleven, not 9-11, the way that uh, the hijackers attack a lot of people were with very small knives. Yeah, no, box uh, cutters are still... Box cutters are still illegal. Still illegal. However, the, the difference was also that at that time, we were still thinking 70s-style hijacking. Nobody thought that the, the planes are going to return into missiles. Right. Um, and, you know, if you want something to be afraid of, I don't know of anybody that's ever been stopped carrying a tactical pen in their pocket or in their backpack. Whoa. And I'd I mean, really from much a logic standpoint, I'd, I'd, from a pure logic standpoint of what TSA is trying to do. It's well, well, it, there's, there's it's a, that'll cause you to seg fault. Just trying to apply logic to TSA, but go ahead. Well, yeah, I, I agree with that, but they, you know, they say they're trying to be more risk, right. uh, use risk more at this. And their, their risk is not worrying about the flight attendant their risk is worrying about somebody getting into the the cockpit to take over the plane Mm, so unless you think the pilot is going to succumb to pressure because they're threatening the flight attendant's life i mean they're not going to open the door that's not what they're supposed to do so from a pure quote-unquote risk standpoint that it it's totally fine to do that yeah well also things you know um Back to Schneier, he he made the observation as others did, but I think he may have been the first. That, you know, two things changed uh, 
significantly in air safety after uh, 9-11, and neither of them have anything to do with the TSA directly. One is the armored cockpit doors, and the other one is uh, everybody knows the rules change. So if you look at you know the crotch bomber or the shoe bomber, uh, it was other passengers that um, managed those situations, you know, managed them into a bloody pulp, which I uh, you know don't have much sympathy for. So if somebody has a pocket knife and thinks they're getting somewhere with it, um, you know, a screaming air flight attendant uh, is probably going to have two or three people pounding somebody's uh, skull in if they do something stupid. Mm. Uh, not yeah. that I advocate that sort of vigilantism, but uh, you know, behave or other people are going to. Are going to address that at least i hope so i hope i'm not I'm the only one with it, jack you can <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly there there will be enough people on the plane who will be like nah no not today could you open the window this guy's going out uh <laughs> 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 could you ask the pilot to drop down to about eight thousand feet so we can pop a door for a minute <laughs> <laughs> already hole when he hits with that, we'll take a short break, come back, and wrap up the show. And we're back. Just say goodbye. Um... Did anyone ever watch the Howard Stern movie? And yeah, when he uh, referred to his uh, his producer as pig vomit, right? I don't know. I got I got thinking about some stuff that's been happening recently, and I think everyone has the pig vomit in their lives, whether it be a person, group of people, a person, place, thing, disease, whatever it is. Maybe we just need to take some time to give the big fu to pig vomit. Can we? Can we? Can everyone join me? And hold up the middle finger. You guys ready? It's giving an F you to pig vomit. Are you guys ready? Okay. Now, wherever you are listening to the podcast, make sure you do the same thing, right? If you're driving, keep, keep most one of your... Hand, keep, yeah, keep one hand most on the of wheel. the hand wrapped around the wheel. We're going to get okay. people shot ready? now. Ready? F you pig vomit. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That's, That's, that helps that help you feel, better, feel now? better I feel Was better. Is that cathartic? Everyone that has pig vomit in their life, hopefully we made them feel better, yeah, too. Yeah, just... just um, if you're driving on the Mass Pike or uh, Route 128 here in Massachusetts, nobody will notice anything different about the yeah. uh, the middle <laughs> finger salute either. So it'll just be undercover. <laughs> Michael Farnham, thank you very much for appearing on Paul.com. It's nice having you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Um, and thank you to our listeners. The core discount code is IMPACTBSG. Jack, you want to take us out? Over. And... Out!